Hi, this is Steve. I'm sure all of you listening have had the experience where you knew for a fact that a movie was supposed to be great, but it took you years to actually watch it. Well, I've been hearing about Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford since it came out. Everyone I knew said that it was an incredible film, but I just never got around to it. And when John launched the Top 10 podcast and it came out on multiple lists, I knew I had to see it. Then we started The Cinephiles, and a strange thing occurred. You see, while this podcast has forced me to look at films in a much deeper way, it has also made me reluctant to simply sit down and watch a great movie for fun if I know it's one we are likely to review on the show. So the fact that we talked about doing an episode on this film actually stopped me from watching it. Well, all that changed 10 days ago, and I honestly can't believe I waited so long to watch this incredible film, with its stunning cinematography, unbelievable cast, and characters that are as compelling as they are unknowable. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford will captivate you while you watch it, and haunt you long after the credits have rolled. So if you haven't seen this incredible film, hop on your horse and ride on over to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream every film we've ever reviewed through Amazon Prime. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, you can listen to part two of our exploration of algorithms, Hollywood and diversity. So that's what we're calling Confronting Your Unconscious Bias on Patreon and part two of our exploration of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford this Friday on The Cinephiles. You want to investigate my courage? Do you? Find out! Find out! Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here on The Outlaw Nation and voiceover artist as well. Excited to be getting back into the world of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford as the outlaw. Jumping back into a Western. I'm excited. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it is really such a remarkable movie, and I'm so glad that that you finally pressured me into watching it. <laughs> and uh, before we even get into it, yeah. I have to send a thank you out to one of our uh, to one of our listeners, okay. which is Eldon Wayne. Eldon mm-hmm. Wayne on Twitter, yeah, said, "Hey, I'm enjoying the show, but have do you know about the Roger Deakins podcast? Mm, right, yeah." Which, I had no idea about mm. it's called team Deacons. And there is a whole episode on the assassination of Jesse James, which sadly I didn't get to listen ah. to before, but I have listened to now. And so mm. I want to just go back because I learned some things that I didn't know before okay. for what we've already talked about. Um, so the first is that uh, Andrew Dominic had a, they literally had a huge hallway of reference images, mm. Polaroids and fo- old photographs and all these things so that every time they walked into the production office, Deacons would walk through this hallway mm. with all of these images. And I think most of them came from Andrew Dominic. Wow. Um, some other things I found out. So, you know, in the very beginning of the movie where we have Charlie and Wood and Ed and they're having that filthy conversation. Yes. Apparently, mostly improv. <laughs> No surprise. No surprise. I know that to, to impro- improvising is a thing I totally get. Right. Improvising in a heightened language mm. is a whole other level of skill. Yeah. That 
amazes me. Like, have you ever seen the improvised Shakespeare company? No, no. Oh my God. Like they will do, you know, they take a suggestion for an audience for a story and some characters, and then they improvise an entire play wow. in Shakespearean language. Wow. And I watched it once and I just, it was a hilarious, but also like, <laughs> holy shit, I think that's iambic pentameter they're making up as they go. I mean, like it was amazing that people can do that. The skill, the um, skill. And by the way, you know how we were kind of speculating, like how much of this was Roger Deakins directing? Mm. He certainly doesn't make it sound like it was. Oh. He says, Dominic, he had a real vision that he was constantly asking questions, that he was constantly pushing him in certain directions. Wow. That, for instance, some of the scenes, like the scene with the train, mm -hmm. that said that deep, deep black, that was really Andrew Dominic's idea. Wow. That's that's was what he wanted. And Deacons kept saying, no, no, do you want it this black? And he's like, yes. And part of the part of the reason they got to that, and this is just so interesting about how movies work, is that Andrew Dominic wanted a huge, powerful train. He mm -hmm. wanted a train that looked like a, a force of nature, you know, like mm -hmm. a, like this huge thing. And they couldn't get a big train. <laughs> because, par partially because it's hard. There are not that many of them. Right. And also because the gauge of the particular track that they had, it had to be. So they had a tiny little train. Mm. And as soon as it switched from a big, huge train to a tiny little train, well, we went, Let's make it all really, really, really black. Yeah. So we can't see that train. Smart. One other thing, by the way, you know, there's that shot and I commented on it mm -hmm. where the train's coming up and it feels like it actually hits the barricade and pushes mm -hmm. the camera back. Mm -hmm. That is, in fact, exactly what they did wow. is they put a whole bunch of foam on top of essentially a car on the tracks. Mm -hmm. And so that really is the train bumping into it and pushing it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, one last thing is one of the other things that it, there's all the shots through the glass that are kind of distorted mm. through windows and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it looks like those old window panes where they didn't really know how to make flat glass yet. Yeah. And they had all that kind of waves within the texture of the glass. And actually mostly they just sprayed clear varnish on the glass, mm. regular glass to create that texture. So those are some of the things I found out in this podcast. And man, the idea that there's an entire podcast of just Roger Deakins talking about his work. <laughs> I might have to go back to the very beginning and listen to all why of them. It's just, kind of amazing. Just like people discovering us and going back and listening to all the episodes we've done. So yeah, why not? Why not? Sure. I I, I put us as the podcast version of Roger Deakins. Oh, why not? I'm not comparing. I'm just saying. It's similar to <laughs> how a I lot heard. of people do. <laughs> all right. So shall we get back into the movie? Let's do it, partner. So where we left off, uh, Jesse James had just come to the house and he picked Charlie to go off and do some work with him right. and leaving Bob behind. And that's where we're picking up is that they're out riding. And the first thing Jesse is asking about is, have you seen Wood Height lately? No, I, I can't imagine where he could be. Charlie has to lie a lot mm -hmm. about this Wood Height thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Charlie's asleep. And there, silhouetted, not moving, in a very frightening position, is Jesse James looking at a sleeping Charlie Ford. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, this was discovered. This They, they kind of lit the scene. Mm -hmm. And then Brad and Andrew Dominic are kind of moving around, playing with it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that Roger Deacon set up to do this silhouette at the door. It was that they just discovered it on the day. Finish with your sleep. <laughs> as if it's a chore you know and uh and jesse's gonna let us know that he kind of sees sleeping as a chore because of course the voiceover and the narration has kind of let us know 
all the different physical maladies that Jesse is suffering at the same time. And when he sits down, he's going to, you know, tell us how, you know, pity my wife because he's restless or pity me eventually because he can't sleep. He he doesn't sleep like normal people sleep. And that, Steve, as you know, we've read many uh, scientific articles about how having lack of sleep can really affect how you see the world. Your paranoia increases, your suspicion increases. All you start to sense that you can, you know, connect on a different wavelength than everyone else. Uh, you even can predict something that happens before it happens, and it almost validates the fact that you've got some kind of extra sensory perception in the middle of the madness of not being able to sleep as much. I think absolutely that is part of what is sending Jesse James round the bend. Yeah, mm-hmm. and imagine like so: a, you're fa- afraid for your life to begin with. B, you have to lie to the person that you're afraid for your life and C, that person comes, wakes you up in the middle of the night with a gun Mm -hmm. and now you have to keep lying to them. Yes. And God help Charlie Ford because he, I mean, you you talked earlier in the first part of this episode or first part of this uh, breakdown of this film where how you're like, is Robert Ford a coward or not? I mean, he keeps his steel in certain moments, blah, blah, blah. Charlie too. For all the, the all the supposed dumbness of Charlie or him not having a bigger uh, view of the world, he keeps his resolve. He keeps his strength in the face of Jesse's piercing eyes when he's questioning him, especially. And Jesse does this when he's just woken up. That's when you're most weakest. You're most right. susceptible to confusing your story or stumbling around is when you're groggy and revealing stuff you may not normally reveal if you're fully awake. So. Jesse is taking advantage of this moment uh, to try to shake Charlie and it doesn't work. Well, and I think it really depends on how we define our terms. It's like, do we define bravery as the absence of fear Hmm. or do we find bravery as the conquering of fear? Well, yeah. Well, I don't see bravery here at all. I just see survival on both sides, Uh, both forts. I think it's survival. But, but to me, Charlie is, unquestionably terrified. Oh yes, very much so. Which is why I think it's just survival. Yeah. But but he does well, except that under those conditions, yeah. it's real tempting to just give in. Oh, sure. You know? Sure it is. Sure. Um, so he has at least enough spine to and, may, and maybe it is just as you say, self-preservation, but mm-hmm. but it takes a lot. And mm-hmm. it's so interesting that what Jesse says is I've been holding a discussion with myself over if I ought to tell you this or no. A good side one out there. John, is this his good side? I don't know, man. To be honest with you, with this character that they've depicted, uh, I don't think there is a good or bad side. There are just whatever sides he feels like he's in the mood for that day or that moment or uh, or that section of the conversation even. so. But he's trying to paint it like, you know, oh, I could have killed you, but I chose to go. Another. You know what? I flipped the coin and the coin wasn't scratched mm. when it landed. So you get to live. It's basically that. Well, and it's also a manipulation because on the one hand, he's about to confess yes. a crime. And on the other hand, this is all a threat. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And what's so interesting, too, by the way, is Charlie is trying to get out of it. Yeah, my mind's a little cobwebby. It's on the drawback. But no, he's not getting out of this. And Jesse starts to tell the story about visiting Ed. Oh, man. He, he gets up to the point where something's not right. And I say to Ed, come on, Ed. Let's go for a ride. At this point, Charlie is wide awake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Come for eyes like giving him what for. And then a really weird thing happens, which is Jesse goes into the third person. So, Ed and Jesse, they argue on the road. Why does he shift into the third person? Well, just one of his tactics to make it seem as if 
he is telling you a story and not attaching what happens to the story to him personally. He doesn't say, I killed Ed. Jesse shot Ed. Jesse killed Ed. You know, almost like a bit of a psychotic break or schizophrenia or whatever. But I just think it's more overall a tactic. So it's so it can uh, alleviate the listener um, from connecting subconsciously the things he's telling to the person who's telling them uh, right in front of his face. It's so funny because it 100% could be a tactic Mm. and 100% could be unconscious. Like part of me wonders is if Jesse James actually thinks of the person that is the killer. Yeah. As sort of a different person. Exactly. A schizophrenic type know? thing. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. Well, well and who, of course, what does that make me think of? But that makes me think of Tyler Durden and Fight Club. <laughs> that's you know? right. That's right. Uh, so, so Jesse and Ed go for a ride. And then we go to the flashback. And of course, by the way, this was originally supposed to be played in sequence. Mm. It wasn't intended to be a flashback, which is so strange because doing it as a flashback at this moment when he tells the story is so great. Yeah, it works so well. And we're out. It's dark. They're riding together. The shot is absolutely gorgeous. And this is, by the way, a pickup. Mm. And the reason it's a pickup was they had it scheduled to shoot. And they were going to shoot it pretty much right after he shot the actual scene with Ed and Ed's house. But the ground is covered with snow. Mm. Tons of snow on the ground. And Deacon says, we can't shoot this now. And the reason is, is because snow is hugely reflective. So if you light a scene where the ground is all snow, that snow is going to reflect that light back up. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have a generalized light where we can kind of see everything. There's no way to stop that from happening. And they didn't want generalized light. They wanted it pretty dark. Right. And so this was shot later on in California. Everything else shot in Canada, sort of north of L.A. in the hills somewhere Mm -hmm. or in a field. It's actually in a field and there's no trees. Wow. And all they did, and it just sounds so strange, is that they set up like 10 5K lights, which are really huge lights, Mm -hmm. big, powerful, 5,000-watt lights. And they're all on the front and shooting towards them. There's no light behind. There's nothing to fill things out. And that's why the only things that pop are their faces. And they're in this empty field, and they look at it and go, man, we could really use some trees. So they just bought some kind of dead trees and staked them into the ground, and that's the trees they're riding through. Wow. Wow. But it looks amazing. Oh, yeah. The darkness, the nighttime shot, the way they're lit, you know, and you sense the dread of seeing Jesse just kind of roaming behind. It's really unsettling uh, how it's going. And and it makes you feel a lot of sympathy for Ed as well, because, I mean, he's just this poor little creature that's being hunted down by this massive animal. You know, it's like watching the lion's when they tackle or when they like seek out a a smaller creature that can't escape. It's just, you feel pity for him completely. And Garrett Dillahunt does such a fantastic job because he is front, uh, right in front of the cameraman. So you're seeing him going through this mental journey of accepting what's happening. And as soon as Jesse pulls off, he goes, you going ahead. Ed?" he knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen. And the shot, but he's still shocked when he shot. And I love Garrett's look on his face after he shot before he exits frame. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and there's this moment where he asks him about counting the stars. And mm, and Ed yeah. says, I don't even know what a star is. And he says, well, your body knows. It's your mind that forgot. 
I have no idea what that line means. Really? I was trying to, what, what is, well, tell me, well, what does it mean? A lot of people feel that, um, and especially if you like study the new age stuff, that the, the moon and the stars and all that stuff in space, it affects you on a very primal level. It affects oh. your body, it affects your chemistry, it affects, can affect period cycles for women, it affects things in your body. Like people talk about, right? Like the certain moons and certain mm-hmm. things like that. So, all of that, I think, uh, in this line, I'm like, oh, is Jesse a is Jesse a reader? Is Jesse a guy who reads? And remember, back in this time, uh, Steve, there was this prevalent belief, and we'll get to it later with Charlie. There's this prevalent belief. There's this mystical quality that it ghosts and things that can get into your mind and things that can make mm. you think certain. This is the beginning of this idea taking hold in the mainstream pop culture of like otherworldly shit affecting your life. So I don't know how much science Jesse might have read to maybe or maybe some random article he read in one of those newspapers talking about how uh, the, the changing of the moon or those sites can affect your body and the stars can affect your body. I don't know. I'm so glad I asked you this question because I think I was thinking of it so literally because he says, I don't know what a star is. And he's like, well, your body knows what a star is. And I'm like, I don't know what that. But what you say, I think is 100 percent. That's what it is. There is a not just superstitious, but there is a sense of the connection of things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, with Jesse and deeper meanings and partially because he's lack of sleep and paranoid, yeah, yeah. And, you know, on the edge of crazy. So <laughs> that stuff all works. There's a moment, by the way, where Jesse rides behind him. Yes. And Ed and he kind of stops and Ed is continuing to go forward. And the only light in the background is Jesse's face, mm-hmm. but it's out of focus. Mm-hmm. And it is so creepy and beautiful and strange and threatening just amazing and then he rides up behind and then again it's what i said before we know jesse's gonna kill him right when that gunshot hits it is shocking absolutely shocking and it's loud and out of nowhere and i love that jesse has to has to settle his horse Mm -hmm. because the horse was freaked out of course unsurprisingly it's a loud sound and then man he moves forward ed's on the ground and then he just blows his brains out. Yeah. As a In- filmmaker, let me ask you a question. Do you like when they show a little bit of the unnecessary gratuitous? Did we have to see the flap of his head fly open? Or the back of his head, rather? Uh, so I think it's I think it's totally dependent upon what is the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we've talked about this before. We're like, you watch if you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, which my son loves, we show it to him when he was really young. Mm-hmm. There's like thousands of people that die right. in that movie. True, true, true. But it never feels like thousands of people are dying. Right. Whereas this one death, this one moment, you feel on a visceral, yeah. literally visceral level. Yeah, true. And so it, to me, it's like, what's the intention? Right. Um, in general, I don't like gory violence. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can't, but if someone hired me to do a movie that required it, then I would do it. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Like I love beautiful, elegant. I love fight scenes. So I love a Jackie Chan fight scene or mm-hmm. a great sword fight or things like that. I just find that thrilling. Right. And that is way more on the Guardians of the Galaxy side. Mm-hmm. But if I was making The Godfather or if I was making Goodfellas, yeah. you know, then the part of the point, like Goodfellas is a good example of where everything seems so romantic and fun with being a gangster. And then we show you this dude in the car. Right. You know, and it has to be really visceral. Yeah. Um, by the way, they couldn't shoot this uh, headshot effect on the day because apparently they were <laughs> near Los Angeles. And, and Deacon says that it was colder that night than it had ever been in the entire shoot in Canada. Wow. 
And it was so cold that the special effects guy who had the fake head with the fake blood in it, Mm -hmm. the blood froze. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. So they couldn't shoot it because the blood was solid. Um, And they tried to like warm it up and get it to work and it wouldn't work. And so finally, uh, the director went and shot it in his backyard. (laughs) And it's like, it's only like eight frames that are actually in the movie or something. It's really, really fast. (laughs) And now we've seen Ed's death and we go back to the present with, Jesse talking to Charlie, right. and he says, Do you see shot and killed him? And I love Charlie's reaction. Jesse did. And the thing is, is the way Jesse described the scene to Charlie is that they had an argument on the road. Right. And that's why Jesse killed him. But we see in the scene that that is not what happened at all. Yeah. You got a tail swap with me now. Again, I asked this question. Does Jesse know what happened to Wood? Yes. But he's been with Charlie ever since he left that dinner table at the house. Yeah, yeah. So if he knows what happened to Wood now, that means he knew knew what happened to Wood then when he showed up at the house. Oh, yeah. I think that's why he showed up at the house. I think he he's one of – well, how can I say this correctly? Let me, let me correct myself a little bit. I don't think that he fully knows. I think he has a very strong suspicion, 95% of what happened. And he just wants to hear one of them finally say it. But he has just enough doubt – that uh, he creates the space for them to be able to live, right? So until he hears it from them. So I think he suspects very strongly what happened, but he doesn't 100% know, which is why these Ford brothers get to escape in the end. Yeah. He is so scary in this scene. Oh, yeah. And he says, Seems to me you have something to confess in exchange. You'd only be right. You'd spit it out now. About wood height, for example. And man, Charlie shows some Charlie holds his shows some spine. Yeah, sir. I've been saying over and over again, I can't figure out where he's going now. I'm not going to change my story just to have something to spit. Jesse kind of accepts it and says, okay, you go back to sleep now. And Charlie's going, well, you got me agitated yeah. now. Because by the way, I think Jesse is just going to sit in the rocking chair while Charlie sleeps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just ain't no peace when old Jess is around. And then I love this. This is the this is like the key to why Charlie actually pulls off this lie to some degree. Ed Miller was a good friend of mine. He introduced me to you at that one poker game. I'm a little angry with you. You want to know the God's honest truth. And rather than responding to Charlie saying I'm angry with you about murdering my friend, yeah. Jesse says, "Yeah, pity me too." That's an amazing moment. Because mm-hmm. I think. In a weird way, you do have to pity Jesse James. This is a troubled, no, sad person. I'm not pitying this son of a bitch. Have you seen all the stuff he did, killing young kid, kids and women and all that kind of shit? Nah. But in the frame of the movie, because it's Brad Pitt, yes, you can pity that characterization of Jesse James in the movie for sure because of the because of when we're catching him. But this is the end of his days of piss and vinegar. But back in his 20s, how much would you have really pitied this guy for all the shit he pulled? So, yeah. You're 100% right. And I had to restate the way I said okay. that. Is that I can feel that this is a sad person. Yes. And I can feel not pity and not sympathy, but can feel his feelings. Yeah. I can feel some empathy. Yes. Like that even though this is also a truly horrible person who yeah. has literally dug his own psychological grave, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um we're in a city, the most of a city we've ever seen, and Bob is walking through the street and goes right up to a police station 
And then we're back in the snow and there's a whole bunch of like a huge posse that descends on our house Mm -hmm. and they call to have Dick come out because Bob has turned Dick in. Yep. And I love that Bob comes out first yeah, because that kind of cements his alibi. Well, also he comes out first so that he can be, you know, kind of look like the more gutsier of the two or whatever. Sure. Yeah. And what we hear is that somehow this was a setup for Bob to get in with the governor of the state, Governor Crittenden. And we go, it's so weird where the movie is going now because mm. we go to this beautiful black tie event mm-hmm. at, with the governor and the governor, because I didn't know that this guy was in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were just watching like, wait, is that James Carville? <laughs> He's so good in this movie. He's so good. Dude, he's this. better than most actors I've seen play parts like this, Steve. He is so believable. He is so on point. Um, in the, the Yes, the political stuff, which will be the first scene we see him in. But then later when he's having the one-on-one with Robert Ford, oh, man, is, is James Carville good in this role? He is great. And he's making some speech and Bob is there looking very out of place mm-hmm. and kind of laughs and is getting dirty looks. And then after the speech, Bob is just marching right up to the governor when he gets about 10 feet away. Yeah. He just gets tackled by the police or the security or whoever it is. Yeah. Just it's a uh, and that's Michael Park, right? From uh Kill Bill. That's him. Oh, that's who that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah who does such a fantastic job. Um, but yeah, they tackle him, they take him out. And the re and you know. Robert, once again, and there's a difference in this. Like you talk about empathy. The Robert Ford at the end of the movie, I have a lot of empathy for because he's grown up, right? The Robert Ford in this section of the film is a little bitch, and I hate him, and I don't like him. And he's a guy who's who's trying to, once again, leapfrog status, leapfrog steps, leapfrog space, uh, levels so that he can feel important. And him kind of thinking that as a regular nobody citizen, he can straight up walk up to the governor and not and, and just be like and with this like big old like, hey, I'm your buddy type of thing. Instead of with some kind of respect or reverence for the office, it, it's ridiculous. And when he's that little smirk he does when he's sitting there with the two cops and then they eventually drag him upstairs. Uh, Park says it best. Like he says, you little, you little, you know, you're a little something. man. Oh, you weren't going to do that, Bob. You wanted attention for yourself. You think you're somebody now. You know, and I, he's putting him in his place a little bit, which I kind of appreciated. So, well, what's so weird is that it's like Bob thinks he has it all figured out and is mm-hmm. therefore above everybody. That's the thing, right? Yes, it, and a he, he he has figured some stuff out, right? He isn't. It's not that he's dumb, but he no. isn't who he thinks he is. You know, right? He's got an overinflated uh, sense of self. Yes. So the governor shows up. And is talking because Dick Little is there, too, Mm -hmm. is talking to Dick Little and to Bob. And the governor clearly doesn't even know who Bob is and is trying to figure out what his relationship is. But but the governor does want to get Jesse James. Mm -hmm. And he says, Jesse James sent me a telegram last month saying he'd kill me if he had to wreck a train to do it. He said once I got in his hands, he'd cut my heart out and eat it in strips like it was bacon. Carvel, you're right. He's so good in this scene. Right. He leans in too, Steve. Yeah. He's not afraid of the camera. And he leans in and he reiterates this point. And Steve, just like you said, the second you start to feel a little empathy for Jesse, then you have the governor saying, this is what Jesse sent me. This is what Jesse told yeah. me. And there is yeah. evidence of some of these letters out there for people to find if they want to do some research. Some of the really graphic things that he said he was going to do to people because, you know, he's an angry little man. It will never cease to amaze me people's ability to blind themselves to the reality of somebody mm-hmm. 
in order to make them because they believe they're a hero. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Just like Bobby Brady. Yeah. Just like Bobby (laughs) Brady. Um, And what's so funny is, is when he says this thing about cooking my heart like bacon, Bob laughs. I'm sorry, Your Excellency. I was thinking about something else. Yeah, he's such a little bitch, man. Why did he laugh? He, what, he, what thought went through his head? Because he kind of respects Jesse for being able to speak to power like that, for being able to unsettle power like that. This is some. This is the. This is the part of Robert that is a fan of Jesse. This is the part of Robert that respects Jesse because Jesse represents, or the myth of Jesse James represented, a lot of hard scrabble people who grew up in poor conditions, fighting against government, fighting against authority, fighting against the law. You know, he was Southern guy fighting against the Union. All that kind of stuff. So his laugh uh, that he's gonna that the governor is gonna do something to Jesse. He almost thinks the governor's below Jesse. They just the Jesse could get the governor if he wanted to, and so that laugh is one of almost like ha, you're ain't gonna do shit. Jesse's gonna find you if he wants to, and then he has to kind of cover it up, you know. So he's playing right. in both. That's the thing that's so frustrating about him. He's a little pissant playing on both sides of the fence whenever he feels it's convenient for his own best interests. Well, I totally, totally agree. And I think there's a thing where if society, if you feel unaccepted by society, mm. then there is a tactic, a, a self-defense mechanism, which is to say society is bullshit. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the things that don't accept me are bullshit. Right. And because when he walks into that big party and the governor's making a speech, he laughs at that too. Yes, he does. This self-defense mechanism blinds you to the fact that while there are is bullshit in the world and we can see through a lot of the bullshit and some of the powerful people they there's all sorts of bullshit yeah, yeah. there's also it's not all bullshit right <laughs> <laughs> this guy is the governor mm-hmm. he does have some power and he does have some skills and yeah. he is something and you are nothing Who are you, <laughs> you know? what have you done you know you probably didn't even vote for it you probably didn't even vote so who? Oh, he oh, didn't vote. Who are you, Robert Ford? <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. Who are you? Oh, oh, you know Jesse James. Oh, wait, you rode with Jesse James for a couple of months. Oh no, you actually stayed in his house for a couple of days. Who the fuck are you? You know, but it's that again, the overinflated sense of self that uh, that uh, people like that tell themselves so they so they can feel like they've got something over on the world when in fact the truth is they they're pretty fucked up. And what the governor does at this moment is first explode that myth yeah. about Jesse James be doing what he's doing for political reasons or good reasons. And then I love Car- how Carville delivers the speech. I'm saying his sins will soon find him out. I'm saying his cup of iniquity is full. I'm saying Jesse James is a desperate case and may require a desperate remedy. <laughs> that is a great speech, man. The cup of iniquity, man. And then Dick off camera nudges Bob and says, you all got the right man for the job. <laughs> and Bob gives this strange, awkward smile. Yeah. It's redundant, but the next scene is gorgeous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the snow. We're on like a frozen lake. Jesse is on the left side of frame moving forward. Charlie back with the horses on the right side of the frame. The use of the wide format is absolutely gorgeous. And Jesse says to Charlie, have you ever considered suicide? Mm. First of all, that's interesting because, of course, it's foreshadowing because Charlie's going to kill himself later in this film. Yeah. But I also like Charlie's reasoning why he doesn't. I can't say that I have. There's always something else I wanted to do. Or my predicament's changed or I saw my hardships from a different slant. 
Suffer hardships from a different slant as a reason not to kill yourself is such an interesting because I actually totally get this is like you're dealing with something shitty. Yeah. That might make you want to kill yourself. But then that gets maybe resolved and a new shitty thing from a different direction comes at you because you've dealt dealt with the first one. Now you go back to square one and you're again, not contemplating suicide until another bad thing comes along, (laughs) which again, distracts you from suicide. It's totally illogical. And yet it perfectly makes sense to me. Yeah. You know what? And you know, what's fascinating about this movie too, Steve, this is 2007, right? 2006 when this thing came out, we are way more open to discuss things like this in our society, right? Simone Biles just pulled out of the Olympics for mental health reasons. And she's pulled out of subsequent events as well as the Olympics, go, Olympics goes along and a number of people have spoken about this and we've become way more certainly I've spoken about it on my program so it's more open to have this discussion I wonder if this film's come if this film comes out could have if this film had come out now I wonder what the reviews would have been like I wonder if people would have you know had conversations about the mental health aspects of Jesse James in the the way it's characterized in the movie. Because certainly the suicide thing seems to fit. We've been building to this suicide conversation the whole movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and because there is a very strong argument that Jesse James, in fact, commits suicide in this film. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah. You can argue that for sure. It's funny you bring up the Simone Biles thing, and I don't, mm-hmm. I won't make a huge digression. But the thing that I heard recently in all this discussion, it's literally happening right now as we're recording this, yeah. is that people have brought up the Carrie Strug landing on that bad yeah. foot yeah. moment of the Olympics and reframing it in a way that just is really shook my brain up. Yeah, because it's always been like, look at this c- courageous athlete, right, who overcomes adversity and manages to succeed in a moment of tremendous pain and what bravery that is. Yeah. And that's how we framed athletics. I mean, how many stories of the football player who pops their shoulder back into place and keeps playing? I mean, that's just the normal or the boxer. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. you and I both love boxing and love boxing movies. And Rocky is the guy who keeps taking punishment and keeps going. Yeah. And what they've said is that maybe that was wrong. Maybe that was her being pressured into. And apparently she's still limping. Yes, today, yes, yes. You know, is that maybe, in fact, that was the wrong choice to pressure a person into doing this painful thing. I you think know? the 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 better way to look, in my opinion, the better. And I and I agree. I had the same kind of conversations as well, Steve, because for for what all my decades of my life in sports, you're admiring the guy who comes back out or the woman who comes yeah. back out onto the field. Like the was the guy in the Knicks in the seventies. What's his face? Uh, Frazier when he came out, uh, or, or Paul Pierce coming out of the wheelchair. That kind of stuff you admire. But I think what we have to create the space for is that if that person comes back from the injury and succeeds, absolutely love them and they're great. And if that person chooses not to, you still love them and they're great because you wouldn't even be in this position to be winning a title or going for an all-around gold if this person hadn't carried the team to this spot. So I think we have to create the space where if they do it, it's great. And if they don't do it, it's great. We just admire the person for even being there. You know, I think that's the – hopefully we get to that overall mentality so that we eliminate this kind of need to push people past the line that affects them for years afterwards, Steve, emotionally you know, or physically. Well, th- I think that's a great way to look at it. And I'll, I'll tell you a personal experience I had uh, that sort of relates to it is that you remember when I had the horrible back pain? Yes. This is- 15 years ago, but I was really, I could barely walk. I didn't sleep in a bed. I couldn't sit in a chair for more than 10 minutes. Like it was terrible, terrible back pain. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever told you how it happened. No. A chiropractor did it to me. Oh shit. Really? So I was having some back pain, some sciatic pain. Yeah. And the 
and we're going to see a chiropractor who was Chinese and connected to like the Kung Fu world. Yeah. And I had, you know, and so I was going to him and he was giving me these stretches. Mm-hmm. And in my world, like doing martial arts, there's a certain point where you have to let sensei or sifu, you have to trust them right. how far your body can be pushed because you're going to like get, you're going to quit. I'm sure you had this experience yep. in the military of like, I would have quit. Yeah. But the sensei says I can do it. Right. And so I did. And like the, I never got to the splits, but I had really high kicks at a certain point in my life because I had two guys pushing my legs apart while I'm in agony mm-hmm. to stretch out my legs. Right. And I didn't break. So now I'm in this chiropractor and we're doing, you know, a butterfly stretch where your knees are out Mm -hmm. and I'm pushing, leaning forward and he gets on my back and starts putting his weight on me to get me to get my face down to my feet. Wow. And then he gets, and I'm thick and strong and muscular. And so it's not that easy for someone to, it takes a lot of force. Yeah. So then he gets another guy and I have two guys pushing on me. Jesus. And they're pushing me down and I'm going, well, this guy knows what he's doing. I mean, this is the, I have to trust in him. Because that's and particularly because he was connected to martial arts things. Right. I put that mentality in my head and then it went pop. Wow. And I felt it. And then I'm and he goes, OK, I think we're done for the day because I think he knew that he had fucked me up <laughs> and, and literally driving home from the chiropractor. I'm suddenly starting to be in agony. Right. You know. Right. And like that's and it was that trust that I didn't, I, I knew that I, that wasn't what was good for my body at that moment, but I put my trust in somebody else. Right. And that's what happened to me. Yep. Cause of that, that can happen. And that's the fucking yeah. sad truth of it. A lot of people have those experiences with doctors. I mean, look at botch. That's a whole fucking series about plastic surgery terrors. Ugh. But on the other hand, I'm really lucky that I tr- put my trust in some senseis that got me to do things that I never thought I was capable right. of. Right. And that's and what so I'm saying. This is the balance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You just never know, you know, yeah, it's it's a really, really tough one. Hey, uh, since we're looking to rob banks, I was wondering if we could add another fella to the gang. And Jesse has moved forward and he's knelt down and he's kind of swept the snow off the ice. And we could see fish through the ice yeah. into the lake. And Charlie is in the background and the range of snow-covered mountains are in the background. And Charlie is asking about bringing Bob on. And as he's talking about how this guy could help us, mm-hmm. Jesse draws his gun and fires through the ice, yeah. I guess, trying to hit that fish. Yeah. And Charlie just keeps talking and it is so unsettling. Savings bank or railroad. And we get to the point where as Charlie's talking up his brother, that Jesse says, you forgot, I already met the kid. <laughs> yeah, he surely thinks highly of you. All America thinks highly of me. <laughs> and my question here, has Charlie and Bob already talked about killing Jesse James at this point? And has Charlie decided that they are? Is, is he asking Jesse to bring Bob on? to be another crook or is he asking Jesse to bring Bob on as part of the plot to assassinate Jesse James? I think Charlie's bringing Bob on so he can share the, 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 um, the danger together. He can have a familiar Mm. face there. I don't know that Charlie's necessarily thinking that far ahead. Um, I think it's more a matter of like, you know, it's just me and you, and this is getting really unsettling for me. And I don't know how much longer I can hold out keeping you off me about this wood height shit. So let me bring a Mm. family member on on who can be a bit of a ally for me in this situation 
Um, I think it's it's Robert who, who presents the idea of killing Jesse. I think it's Robert who is the driving force behind that whole thing. Even when he's killed, as we see later on in the movie, Charlie's like hanging out by the door, ashamed that he's even in the room when the stuff is about to happen because he knows it's about to happen. So I don't think there's ever been a driving force within Charlie to kill Jesse. It's been about Robert no, doing yeah. it. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I think it's always been about Bob. My yeah. question is more of what conversations have Bob and Charlie had at this point? I don't think they've had conversations about killing Jesse at all. I, I don't think I so. think, I, I think, of course we don't know. Yeah, we There's don't because no it's not shown in the movie. Uh, yeah. Um, is that I think in the last episode we talked about that Bob might've been thinking about thinking about killing Jesse James mm. since he was a kid, just thinking about oh, it. Oh, really? Not that he was thinking about it. Okay. Well, just in the sort of fantasizing about stuff, you know, is that I wonder, I think Bob has brought it up with Charlie, mm. but not in a way that's serious before this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of said like, you know, anyone, someone who killed Jesse James, there's a big reward out for that guy. Yeah, yeah. But not said, I think you and I should do this. Right. Or even you sometimes you might go, man, if we were to kill, how would we do that? Right. But not, we're not really talking about it. <laughs> um, but speaking of Bob, he's now working in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And in walks a sheriff who is, it took me a while to recognize him, but he's so great. Mm-hmm. It's Ted Levine. Yep. He is always knowledgeable about what's going on. He's going to know that I've been here with you. And he will kill you if he gets the chance. And he asks, are you going to risk that? And Bob says, yes, I am. Mm. And then he gives a reason. I've been a nobody all my life. I was the baby. I was the one they made promises to that they never get. I think that's a real interesting line. Mm -hmm. I'm prepared for this, Jim. I want to accomplish it. I know I won't get with this one opportunity, and you can bet your life I'm not going to spoil it. That's, uh, yeah. you weren't, you weren't given one opportunity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've said this is your only opportunity. You, you focused your whole life on this idea that this is your only way to get where you want to get. Yeah. Yeah. Jim gets up real close to him and blows smoke in his face. And he says, well, wait for your chance, but don't get alone with him and do not let him get behind you. Yeah. That line haunted me for the rest of the movie. Mm. Cause there, there's so many times where Jesse James walks behind mm-hmm. Uh, Bob in the rest of the film yeah, or is behind him. And it's, and every time he goes behind, it scares me because of this line. Well, it's also funny too, that like Jesse's never considered to be a coward in the retelling, but he shot plenty of people in the back, but somehow yeah. it's Robert. Who's the coward or considered to be the coward for shooting Jesse in the back. I find that fascinating. Maybe because Jesse shot I, people huh. in all different places, front, back, side, but still it's bad to shoot people in the back. And Jesse certainly did it. This is something that came up, I think, in maybe one of our other podcasts. Mm. But it's like, if if you if you're dealing with someone who is living outside the law and doesn't play by the rules, I don't think you're required to play by the rules with them. Yeah, true. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, if you have a guy who regularly shoots people in the back who work for him and you're working for him, well, I don't necessarily feel that I have to follow the Marcus of Queensbury rules over a guy that could kill me at any moment. Yeah, in the back, exactly. you know. Yeah. And then Bob is restocking some shelves and we see Charlie come in first. And then we hear Jesse's voice say, you've been chosen. He turns around like in complete and utter horror. Uh, and, but, he, but he still uses bluster. Yes. Because Jesse says, did you miss me? And he says, oh, yeah, I've been crying myself to sleep every night. <laughs> and outside, there's just a brief moment where the brothers can talk to each other. Don't let him see us so much as wink at each other. He's suspicious as a damn coyote. And he don't trust you one iota. Hey, you already put away Ed Miller. Said so like it's something piddly done. Again, I'm going to stop saying it because it's silly, but Charlie's sitting in the wheat 
and Bob mm. approaching with the church in the background through the wheat field is stunning. Yep. It's so beautiful. It's so well-framed. And it juxtaposes when we first saw Bob walk into this whole situation at the beginning of the movie. There was also kind of vegetation. They're sitting on some wood or whatever, and they're having the, and they're all making fun of Bob. They don't even notice Bob. Yeah. So the difference here, the change in power in this dynamic, mm. right? Now Bob yeah. is coming in. It's Charlie who's scared. Uh, essentially in a, in a, in a, I don't know what do you call that position, but a, a sitting position, but a sitting position where it looks like he's taking a dump and it's fear, right? It's a submissive yeah. position in a sitting position. And Robert is the one that has to come up and talk to him. And Charlie is like, you know, Charlie's just so not, doesn't know what to do, you know, which is why he's yeah. gone so far away. And Bob has to be the one who kind of pacifies him. They gave me 10 days. For what? We're arresting him. You and me, huh? Which actually, I'm going to say more strongly, they have definitely talked about it. They had to have talked mm. about it, or this scene doesn't make sense. That's a fair point. It's going to happen one way or another, Charlie. It's going to happen. So it might as well be us who get rich on it. And Charlie's response is so weird because he says, Bob, he's our friend. It's because Charlie's not, it's not built to do that, Steve. He doesn't have that instinct to kill. We haven't seen Charlie even raise his weapon, I think, the whole... Uh, Movie and even when no. the even when the gunfight is happening there in his room, he's laying on the bed or sitting on the bed while it's all going down. He's not pulling out a gun to try to pick a side. He's not a killer. Well, and you know what? I think Charlie is in part of an abusive relationship. Yeah. Charlie is like this guy who wakes me up in the middle of the night with his gun, yeah. literally clearly threatening my life. Yeah. He's still my friend. I think he really likes me deep down. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know? It's just so crazy. And, and, but Bob says what you and I have been saying. Well, it seems to me Jesse's riding from man to man saying goodbye to the gang. So your friendship puts you under the pansies. Great dialogue, man. Put you under yeah. the pansies. I love that. Yeah. And I think Charlie's still definitely on the fence. You think it's all made up, don't you? You think it's all yarns and, and newspaper stories. To which Bob replies. He's just a human being. I don't know. And I go like, well, does Bob really think he's just a human being or does he not? You know, like he's, is he still romanticizing him? Yeah. It's hard to figure. And they're starting to walk back to the house and there is Jesse James. Intense, man. He's pissed. Now and you two won't go anywhere without me. Now and you'll ask for my permission. Now and you'll ask to be excused. Scary paranoia. Yeah, yeah. And we ride up to Jesse James's house, and there is Z, the wife, and she is clearly not pleased to see Bob. Nope. She even says it out loud. You didn't tell me Robert was coming or Bob was coming. <laughs> I love Bob's response. Well, maybe he was saving it as a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Stupid little weird <laughs> smile is, and she just kind of stares at him with like, you, what? you creepy I, fuck. Get away from me. Well, well, and I wonder too, like, I think Z has had conversations with Jesse oh, about Bob. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, you know, she reflexively covers her daughter's face, like protects her daughter. Mm. Like, is there some kind of weirdness about that? We're, we're making some plans about some robbery that's never going to happen. Jesse is sort of subtly expressing his distrust of Bob. Well, you're giving me signs that grieve my soul and make me wonder. Maybe your mind's been changed about me. And Bob's response, again, aggressively. What do you want me to do? Swear my good faith on the Bible? <laughs> and again, I go, this is all goes to when did Jesse know that Bob was going to kill him? And when did he decide he wanted him to? Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, he's pretty sure Bob 
wants to kill him. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think he's necessarily decided that's what he wants. Yeah. It seems like you have some deep thought about this right now. I, well, I mean, I, I, how, where, where did, where do you think Jesse begin? At least in the construct of this movie, because who knows how much of this is actually based? Oh on. yeah, yeah. Where do you think he starts to believe? And you asked this in the first part. Where do you think he starts to believe that Robert is going? Like he's setting the stage for Robert to take him out. Like he senses what Robert's going to do. Because why is he alternately suspicious of them, but then? kind of surrenders himself to Robert here in just a few days. What do you think? What do you think here? I just had a real big thought yeah. and I want to phrase it in the right way because this is a very complicated topic. Right. Here's what I just occurred to me. I think Jesse has maybe been contemplating suicide for a long time. Yeah. And I think Bob is the gun that he bought that he mm. keeps thinking he should get rid of. <laughs> That's a fucking great uh, point. That's a great analysis, Steve. Yeah, Bob is the gun that he bought and is just there. And every once in a while, he wants to use it. And other times, he hates that fucking gun so much. But he can't quite bring he himself get rid of to, it, right? to actually get rid yeah, of it. Yeah, because he's in both sides of the fence. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Damn. And so- they're having this conversation and Charlie comes in sensing that there's some anger here. Yeah. And then Jesse asked Bob to come sit closer to him, to sit in front of mm-hmm. him. Bob, Jesse's sitting on the couch. Bob sits down on the, in front of him and Bob touches his back. And then he even musses his hair. And now yeah. he starts rubbing his back. And this is scary. Yeah. This is a scary scene. And, and now he starts going over this robbery. Again, robbery is never going to happen, and Charlie's going to be outside, and Bob's going to come in. He's going to be talking to the teller, and while he's talking to the teller, Jesse's going to swing around because that teller's got a shotgun hidden, and he's describing this. And then he says, and I'll cock his head back like so, and he pulls Bob, whose hair he's been mussing. Mm -hmm. He pulls his head back, exposing his neck, brings his knife in right to his throat, and intensely and terrifyingly says... How coming off scouring of creation like you still sucking air with so many mining and coughing? I'll say, how did you get to reach your 20th birthday without leaking out all of your clothes? And if I don't like his attitude, I will slit that filled doodle so deep he will flop on the floor like a fish. And then he lets him go. Yep. The most interesting part of that line to me is how did you reach your 20th birthday? Yeah. Yeah. Because that is how old Bob yep. is. And then right after he lets him go, and I think this is a thing that only Brad Pitt can really do, is he says, my God, what just happened here? And he bursts out <laughs> laughing with that maniacal Brad Pitt laugh. Yep. <laughs> and the intensity, Charlie is pale white. Mm-hmm. Bob is completely freaked out because I think he knew he was going to die. I think he was pretty damn close to right. it. And then everybody starts to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> because that's all you can do is accept that oh this was just a joke he was just playing Mm -hmm. even though all three of us know that this guy was not playing yeah and the weirdest moment to me is that they're all three laughing and then only charlie and bob are laughing Mm -hmm. and jesse has stopped laughing and he's just (laughs) studying them for a long time and then in total silence he walks out slamming the door behind him. 
Do you think Jesse planned to do this, by the way? No, I think Jesse rolls with whatever's happening in the moment for him in certain moments. He, That's what I think, He too. knows he has the power. And so him yanking Bob, that was Charlie going to do? He knows Charlie ain't going to do nothing. Yeah. And Bob, it's, it's kind of him reiterating to Bob, like, you know, I'm the alpha dog in the fucking room every single time. Oh, just yeah. Just so we're clear. And Bob snapping at him just a few moments ago. This is Jesse's mm-hmm. way of making it very, very clear to him that at any moment, Jesse can still kill him, you know, which I think this is the moment where Bob, as he's like kind of rubbing his neck, as Jesse walks mm-hmm. out and slams the door and Bob stops laughing and he looks seriously. I think that's the moment where Bob goes, I have to kill this son of a bitch or he's going to kill me. Like there's no other way out. You know, the difference between I have fantasized yep. about him. I've thought about maybe I'll do this and. Oh shit. I have no choice. Yes. I have to do this. Yeah. I think you're totally, totally right. It's late at night. Again, we've had many of these late Mm. at night, someone sleeping moments. One was the one we just discussed with Jesse waking up Charlie in the middle of the night. The other was wood and Dick where Dick gets up in the middle of the night to go have sex with Wood's stepmom. Right. And he says, I have to go use the privy. And now we're at another where Bob is awake. (laughs) Jesse is sleeping, we think, next to him. He could see that there was a gun on the nightstand. He could imagine its cold nickel inside his grip. Its two-pound weight reached out and aimed. And he looks over at Jesse, and he has a gun in his hand, and slowly, slowly he sits up. Mm -hmm. His bare feet just touch the floor, and we hear the cock of a gun. And Bob says, I need to go to the privy. Which, of course, is just what Dick Little said. Yeah. And we stay on Bob. We don't see Jesse in this moment. And we hear, Thank you, dude. But you don't. (laughs) And Bob lays back down as we hear the gun uncock. Yeah. And he looks over and there's just a sliver of light on his eye. And there's so many levels of light here. There's pure black. There's different shades of gray. Mm. And then there's a brightness around his eye. I just want to talk a little bit. So I am the farthest thing from a good cinematographer. I am terrible. When I teach school, I always (laughs) defer to the cinematography teachers who are way better than me. But I will say this, is that what is happening is that you have a cinematographer and they have a light meter. And they are measuring the light in every different little spot. And that if you have something that's, perfectly lit which is let's say the eye is that each other level it's like this is one stop below this is two stops below this is one stop brighter if it's something that's burnt out and they have gone around and i know that roger deakins painted with light every single part of this frame to get each of those lighting ratios exactly correct and those are also dependent on what lens you're using what film stock you're on if you're doing a post-processing like a bleach bypass which i think they did on a lot of this film yeah like all of that affects all of that math to figure out just to have that eye lit just perfectly the way it is. Jesse was increasingly cavalier, but even as he jested or tickled his boy in the ribs, Jesse would look over at Bob with melancholy eyes as if the two were meshed in intimate communication. I wonder, because here's another question I hadn't thought about until this moment. Mm -hmm. So we've already discussed Jesse's knowing that Bob is going to kill him and contemplating his own suicide. Yeah. We haven't discussed how much does, when does, does Bob think that Jesse knows? That he's going to kill him? Yeah. It's a good question. I don't think. I don't know. Uh, you know, you, it seems overt that he knows when he walks into that, in the living room right before yeah. he dies, but maybe there's an exchange uh, between them eye-wise. Do you know what I'm saying? 
like there's moments where they like they showed that sequence as they're doing the voiceover, which you just uh, mentioned, where uh, Robert is looking out the window and yeah. Jesse's looking up at him, and maybe there's this kind of like they are vibing on the same wavelength because we don't know how much sleep Robert gets either. You know, he might be on the same <laughs> sleep pattern. I don't think he's sleeping that much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I was sleeping in a room with Jesse James, <laughs> who was holding on to a gun, I don't think I'd sleep that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jesse James gives Robert Ford a present. Yeah. It's a heavy box, and he opens it up, and it is a beautiful gun. Well, I figured that granddaddy cold of yours may blow into fragments next time you try to squeeze the trigger. Well, you might have something there. And then Jesse apologizes, yeah. essentially. No, no, I haven't been acting correctly. Seems I hardly recognize myself when I'm greased. I go on journeys out of my body. Look at my red hands and my mean face. I wonder about that man that's gone so wrong. I've been becoming a problem to myself. I mean, honestly, there's a lot about mental health. Yeah. And there's a lot about guilt. And there's a lot about... I think, you know what it is that's interesting too, is he talks about this other person here. Yeah. This mean face and this, and wonder about that man that's gone so wrong. And that's like Jesse and Ed went out for a ride. Yeah. That's that third person. You know what I mean? Yep, absolutely. Um, and I also think this is, you know, we talked about Bob is the gun that he keeps in his house. Well, he just bought the bullets. The day before he died was Palm Sunday. And Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Howard, their two children, and their cousin, Charles Johnson, strolled to the Second Presbyterian Church to attend the 10 o'clock service. Bob remained at the cottage and slyly migrated from room to room. And there's this montage of Bob touching in the most intimate way all of the elements of Jesse James's life. Yeah. Why does Bob feel the need to do this. It's pretty obvious. He's saying goodbye to Jesse in his own way. Touching every one of those things is his way of just saying one last time. He won't be in that house anymore after he does what he's going to do. So he's saying goodbye to what he thought was status for him. Because remember, it's not that long ago that he was like, he was all proud to be being kept by Jesse in the house for a couple of days or helping them move and all of that. Now he's, he seems to be in a different state of mind about this whole relationship. And so him going through a room to room and touching things like that is him his way of saying goodbye to Jesse before he puts him in the ground. For me, it's more than that. Okay. Because for me, he wants to be Jesse James. He thinks that in some strange way, him murdering Jesse James, it's like he could take on a piece of his soul or his fame, hmm. is that he will become, th- that on some level, he he will have stolen his fame by killing him. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so he is feeling what it is. He's feeling what it is to be Jesse James. What does it feel like to lie mm. in Jesse James's bed? What does it feel like to wear his clothes, to touch his things, to drink his water? Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a, it's, and it's such a, a tactile scene. Mm-hmm. You could feel everything you're seeing. Right. Bob and Charlie in the middle of the night. And Charlie is afraid. Oh, he's crying. And, yeah. Because he says he's going to kill us. And Bob is going, well, I'll, I'll protect you, essentially. <laughs> Which to me, it's like, you don't seem like much of yeah. protection to me. <laughs> um, and then we see a title, April 3rd, 1882. There is slow motion of water coming out of a water pump into a bucket. And 
Bob goes down into frame and splashes water on his face. And we see the hands of water coming towards camera. It's almost like a ritualistic cleansing moment, yeah. like, like a baptism. Yeah. Jesse's walking home with his son and Bob says, You think it's intelligent to go out like that? So all creation can see your guns? And we see that Jesse has some newspapers. Yeah. And Bob sees the paper and that one of them on the headline talks about the confession of Dick Little. Yeah. Um, and Bob hides that newspaper under a blanket. Yeah. And then Bob goes and straps on that brand new nickel plated gun that he just got from Jesse James. We're sitting at the table and Bob walks behind Jesse James. And again, this is every time someone walks behind somebody, mm -hmm. I'm kind of noticing it in this movie. <laughs> Then Jesse gets up from the table, goes back out to the parlor, goes to grab the newspapers, and we see Bob watching, and he sees, he lifts up that blanket and pulls out the paper that Bob tried to hide. Yeah. Got to know. I know I keep asking you questions. Has Jesse already read that paper? Probably. I think so, too. Yeah. I think he read that paper. I think he planted it there. I think he knows Bob hit it, yeah. and he's doing all this for show. Yeah. He walks back up. There's this beautiful insert shot of him stirring the coffee cup. And then he lets go of the spoon, which goes click. Well, hello now. The arrest and confession of Dick Little. Um, Charlie, of course, is freaking out. Yeah. Says here Dick surrendered three weeks ago. Well, you must have been right in the neighborhood. Apparently they kept it a secret. And he stands up and he walks away. He's emotional. He's emotional because oh, yeah. I think there's genuine fear combined with sadness combined with like, uh, you know, like you said, Steve, there's one thing to conceive of it. It's a completely different emotion to be in that place. And so um, him getting called out about Dick Littles when he starts to get really emotional and teary eyed because he's almost afraid maybe Jesse might kill him or Jesse might find out that he was the stool pigeon. I mean, that's another thing we haven't talked about. How much does Robert feel Jesse finding out that Robert mm. was the snitch? Well, and there's also, yes, I totally agree with all of that. Mm. And there, there, there's also this weird thing. I know, I'm sure you've had this moment many times, some in very serious ways, some in less serious ways, where there's a thing that you've thought about forever. Oh, yeah. And now you are, now it's that moment. Yep. You know? Oh, yeah. You know, like I remember going up to speak at my dad's funeral and walking up in the temple, in the synagogue to go stand. And I remember just having this, Oh, I'm doing this now. Mm -hmm. This is this, you know what I mean? Like it's such a weird, extremely present and also out of body almost at the same time. Yeah, agreed. And I think because of the way it's shot, we just notice everything. And by the way, this is mostly natural lighting. The house that they're in is one they built entirely mm -hmm. uh, for this shoot. Apparently they had to, this was so isolated that they had to ride horses to go scout the location. Like there's wow. nothing around here. They had to build a road to get to this place so they could bring their equipment in to build this whole thing. Guess I'll take my guns off for fear the neighbors might spot them. And the way that Brad Pitt takes those guns off, from, we're looking at him from behind, and there is so much in just the way he moves mm -hmm. that's filled with emotion. I, I want to say this, um, and it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but you can make a comparison. This is almost... How can I say? Yeah, this is almost like Bob's hero. Bob's Jesus. Bob's savior is Jesse James, mm. right? So he's the Judas in this situation yeah. with the 30 pieces of silver. He is the guy who uh, Christ has chosen to betray him. So he is the guy that Jesse has chosen to betray him. And him handing 
the him taking off the guns and essentially, uh, you know, showing his neck almost to get it sliced off by Bob, uh, so to speak, is the same thing as um, uh, Jesus uh, allowing Judas to run and go um, and do the betrayal. And so it's it's that kind of thing. So there's a, a very kind of religious aspect to this moment as well that kind of struck me this time around watching it. Well, and it goes to this thing that you said way, way at the beginning of our first mm. episode is that this movie is simultaneously telling you how horrible Jesse James is yeah. and that he was really just a human and elevating him yep. to this epic status, yep. even when you're deconstructing it. Yep. And this is a perfect, I mean, because that Jesus metaphor is 100% right on. I think that is exactly what's going on. Right. And it, and that's what makes it so weird is I I don't want to, ad, I don't admire is not mm. even the right world. I don't want to think of Jesse James as a quote unquote great man. Right, right, right. But this is certainly a moment that of, you know, pretty epic proportions. He's a legendary he man. He's not yeah. a great man. That's, that's, yeah. that's the delineation there and you're right and but also uh, steve him taking off his guns makes him defenseless so oh, it yeah. makes it look like robert got the jump on him rather than jesse lost in a gunfight so that there's still he retains a certain level of iconic or legendary status by not being beat in the gunfight he was taken by surprise and that's a thing that you know makes him live on in infamy well, and you just made me have another thought, which I hadn't thought mm. about, is that what he's also doing is setting up Robert Ford to be a coward. Yes, right. Good point. He's framing the gu- the gunfight yeah. where this guy is just shot him in the back. Yep. So he, so that Robert Ford, the whole <laughs> point that Bob Ford wants is to get status. Yeah. And Jesse James in presenting his back has robbed Bob Ford of the status that he wanted to get. Yes, absolutely. You know? What, one more thing, and this is the benefit of listening to that Deacons podcast, mm-hmm. is that this is a natural sunlight that's slashing in across from the side wow. when uh, he takes off those guns. And in order to do that, they had to time their entire day so that at the moment that the sun is at that angle through that window, they're ready to see, shoot this shot. Wow. That's how, I mean, that's the level of planning that movies sometimes take for a little tiny thing. Because, yep. of course, you could just get lights and set up lights and get lighting that's <laughs> similar but it will never be exactly what natural sunlight is. You're like, you know what you could do? You could just get light. How about that? Yeah, how about that? <laughs> See that big 5K you got out there? Just put a gel on it, shine it through, done. Well, you also could have been on a movie set rather than having to build a set where you had to build a road and ride horses to find the set to build. I mean, like you could do all, a bunch of things to make your life easier. Exactly. <laughs> um, but he does take off those guns and then he looks up and says, Don't that picture look dust? And I'll tell you one of the mistakes I made in watching this film. Mm-hmm. Karen and I watched it in two settings, sittings okay. and watched the first half. But then I was getting really stressed about – I didn't have a lot of time, as you know, right. and our scheduling was really tight to record this before I had time to edit it. And so I went, I need to do some more research. And so I read the Wikipedia article on Jesse James mm. and Bob Ford, having only seen half the movie. Right. Oh, okay. So, so I knew exactly how Jesse James had died right. and that he was, and I knew that he was dusting a picture and standing on a thing when he got shot in the back of the head. Yep. So, not, so this wasn't surprising to me in any way gotcha. uh, because I, I spoiled <laughs> the reality by, by reading about it, but he, he grabs a chair, he steps up into frame. Mm-hmm. Charlie casually had his gun out and kind of is aiming. Yeah. And then Bob moves much faster and we see Jesse James look into the reflection mm-hmm. of the picture and see Bob Ford standing behind him with his gun. Yeah. 
the moment before he's shot. I think that is one of the most important choices in the entire film. Yeah, agreed. Because that says he did it on purpose. Yep. And again, even though we know it's coming, that shot to the back of the head is shocking. The way it's yeah. framed in close up, so you see Brad Pitt's the explosion come out of the back of his head, and then him slam into slam, that yeah. glass frame, and then crumple down uh, on the ground. And then his wife runs out oh. screaming and crying, and the shot of dead Jesse James is he looks really dead. And Mary Louise Parker, this is why you cast her in a small role like this because you want you have a emotional moment that you want the audience to feel. So you cast an actress who can bring it with limited amount of screen time. And she does. Uh, would I have liked to have seen her more in this film, more, yeah. more be a character or ever more? Absolutely. But in the service of this film, her reaction to the death of Jesse is so heartbreaking and powerful and emotional and moving. You, no one would blame you for getting emotional yourself or tearing up or crying maybe a little bit because she does such a great job. And in the desperation she doesn't turn to Bob and yell at him in anger. She says, she literally asks him, Bob, have you done this? With blood, Jesse's blood on her face yeah. and her hands. And Bob in just kind of a, because he's a, he's a, at this stage in his life, he's a little wimp. He's like, oh, no, it wasn't, I, no, it wasn't me. And, and meanwhile, he's yeah. sitting there. He's the only other person in the room with a gun in his hand. A gun that probably is still smoking. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, this is seconds later. Well, and the other thing is we have these two kids. And it's like, well, yeah. we might say that the wife knew who her husband was. Right. But it's made very clear. They don't even know his name. Right. They don't know he's Jesse James. Right. And so they are victims. Yeah. Their father was murdered yeah. and they saw his dead body. Now, the fact that he's a horrible person has nothing to do with their experience. Right. You know? Yeah. And then we're at the telegraph office and they send off a telegraph about killing him. And this is the arrogance, man, because Bob says to the telegraph operator, you might want to keep that. Yeah. Because he's already framed himself as this big hero. Yeah. And then there's this sequence of photographing the dead body of Jesse James. That's awesome. It is so great. And I'll tell you the thing I meant to bring up in part one. Mm. But it really was clear to me in this sequence is, you know, what one of the big influences I think of this movie is what? Ken Burns Civil War. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. The way the narration is, the sound of the narration, yep. the way that we look at these photographs and study them, the way we study photographs in the Civil War documentary, yeah. like it is so much here. And in this scene, because there's the whole sequence of people coming to see the body of Lincoln after his assassination. Yes. yes. And this scene we hear. Soon. A thousand strangers were making spellbound pilgrimages to the cottage or were venerating the iced remains inside Invaden's cooling room. Another photograph was taken of the renowned American bandit nestled in his bed of ice. And it was this shot that was most available in sundries and apothecaries to be viewed in a stereoscope alongside the Sphinx, the Taj Mahal, and the catacombs of Rome. And it's so weird because this is another piece of the legend yes, of Jesse James, absolutely. you know, yeah. is his assassination. And we hear New York one year later and we start with Sam Rockwell puking. Mm -hmm. And then he steps onto the stage as Jesse James in heavy makeup where he and Bob are reenacting the assassination. Yeah. I thought you told me you didn't know Dick had surrendered. You mean he did? I didn't know. It is so weird that this really happened. Yep. It was widely felt that Bob possessed some acting talent, and Charlie, not a jot. That picture's awful dusty. And there's a laugh in the audience because everyone knows what's going to happen next. Yeah. And then they reenact the murder, and he shoots him in the back. Yeah. 
And Bob turns to the audience and says, And that's how I killed Jesse James. And there is what I would call a smattering of polite applause. Mm -hmm. By October of 1883, Bob Ford could be identified correctly by more citizens than could the president of the United States. And we're out. We see they're out in fancy dinners. And then we're back on the show. And then we hear something changed in Charlie's stage performance as Jesse. His gait seemed more practiced. His voice was spookily similar to the man's. Picture's awfully dusty. Sam Rockwell is so incredible in this brief moment yeah. of channeling Brad Pitt's performance as Jesse James. Again, this is why you cast the way you cast, because you know where this goes and you want someone in there who's going to be able to do that in such a powerful way. And, you know, at the dinner, um, we should mention this, the reason he's starting to channel Jesse is we find out Charlie's been visiting these people who connect with the spirits mm. who, you know, seeing this uh, witch woman or whatever he says, who is like convinced him that he's some kind of thing that these uh, spirits are, are dancing around them or whatever. So he's getting worse uh, from the guilt of this whole thing. Cause I imagine, cause right. like I said, Charlie's Charles is not a killer. So having to reenact the, and be the one being shot, it must be. And you, what you're doing is you're helping your brother become famous, not you. It must affect you on some really deep level, almost PTSD, almost mental health, uh, possibly mental health. Oh, yeah. And even in that dinner sequence, he is trying to essentially steal Charlie's girl from him by talking about, you know, uh, okay, when you see the headlights, I'll take you in the headlights, you know, all those things. And, and, and Robert has to yank the girl back over to him. But Charlie is clearly in a, in a different space about this whole thing. Well, and remember that line where Charlie says to Bob, he's our friend. Yeah, right. I think some part of him is still like this. We murdered our friend. Yeah, he didn't shoot him. I love the line where Charlie's gotten up to dust that picture mm. and we hear. He began to look at his younger brother with spite as if he suspected that in some future performance, he might present himself to a live cartridge in Robert Ford's gun. And Bob Ames, and he's about to shoot the airsats, Jesse James. And we hear. Murder! Coward! And Bob goes to the, un to the edge of the stage and yells. You want to investigate my courage? Do you? Find out! Find out! And nobody says anything. And he goes back, draws the gun, again is about to shoot, and we ah. hear. And Bob Ford leaps off that stage. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great shot. It is. And just punch the first, the first person who's there in the front yeah. row and starts pummeling people and then eventually is subdued himself. But yeah, uh, that was the first uh, internet troll. I think the first record of an internet troll. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, too, because you know what I think of with Bob Ford jumping off that stage? And it's just because this movie has put this in my mind. Yeah. Is it, I just think of John Wilkes oh, Booth yeah, great leaping point. From, the, from the booth where he just killed Abraham Lincoln. That's right. Six, um, six Semper Tyrannus. That's right. By his own approximation, Bob assassinated Jesse James over 800 times. He suspected no one in history had ever so often or so publicly recapitulated an act of betrayal. Charlie apparently spoke of Z, Jesse James's wife, like the Madonna, and wrote long letters of apology, none of which he mailed. Yeah. And then we're sitting with him. He takes his shoes off. He grabs his gun, and he aims the gun right at his heart. Yeah. And kills himself. Mm. We're in a bar, and Bob is sitting at the bar drinking, and a singer comes in, which is Nick Cave, <laughs> and sings the ballad of Mr. Howard. 
It was Robert Fold, that dirty little coward. I wonder how does he feel? For he ate at Jesse's bread, and he slept in Jesse's bed, and he laid poor Jesse in his grave. So what I didn't know, this is a real song. Yeah. I had no idea. Do you know who all the people that sang this song was? No, who? This is a hit. Really? This was sung by Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, the Kingston Trio, the Pogues. Johnny Cash did a version. Van Morrison did a ber- version. Ooh. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band did a version. And this is the legend of Jesse James. Yeah. This is the framing of who this guy is. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, these a lot, some of them Southern, a lot of them sort of American folk singers. This was just how they told this story. Yeah. Um, and then he's, Bob has had enough and he steps out into the crowd and fires his gun into the ground and says, I'm Robert Ford. He tosses the gun away. And I love that he corrects the song. He says it was two children, not three. And someone laughs and he turns around and sweeps the glasses off a table. Mm -hmm. And then he goes down because he is drunk. Yep. Um, and I almost think, by the way, when he tosses his gun, he's saying, you want to shoot me? Oh, he tosses like, the gun right at him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Like, uh, you know, because I'm not a coward. Yeah. And then he gets kicked out of the bar. Yeah. And we're in a train, and we hear that he's been imagining, maybe I could visit all the victims, all the families of the victims of Jesse James and introduce myself. He's so desperate for affirmation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then we cut to this fan dance and we're in Creed, Colorado. It's 1892. So 10 years have passed. And here's this woman. Uh, and it ends up, she is the only person that he could sp- speak to about what happened. Um, and she asks him, why did he kill him? And Bob's first answer is because he was going to kill me. Yeah. So you were scared and that's the only reason? I don't think either of those are the reasons he killed no, him. No, of course not. Yeah. Because the only reason he was going to kill him was because you put yourself in his path. Exactly. You know what I mean? Well, also, he got what he wanted, right? But was it what he really wanted? And I think that's what I like about the last half of the film, the last part of the film, rather. Because um, in Goodfellas, I hate it. I hate the last part right. of Goodfellas. I've said it numerous times. But in this film, I love it. Because this is the aftermath of what he did. And what happened? You jumped the steps and you thought you could handle fame jumping the steps. You had no fucking idea what was going to happen. Songs being written about you that persecute you, make fun of you. You don't have the emotional bandwidth or strength or, or thick skin to deal with everybody making fun of you. If you can't even handle the friends or your family making fun of you, how are you going to handle an entire public, an entire nation making fun of you? And this is what comes with fame. You know, so many people want to be successful and be famous and blah, 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 but they have no fucking concept of what it's actually like to have every piece of your life uh, dissected and looked at and explored and ridiculed, ridiculed all over the place. It's a tough, tough task to get there. And once you do how you can, uh, who, who deals with it, who doesn't, it's, it's, it's so interesting to watch. And I like that this film explores that. And that's why I like Robert Ford at the end of this film. And I don't like him at any point until the end of this film because he's he's more wiser about the situation. Notice he's more calmer. He's more in control. He's yeah. more aware of things because he's lived through this idea of being ridiculed and being 
shamed and and he went through the drinking period and now when he meets Mary Elizabeth Winst, no, no, sorry, when he meets Zoe Deschanel's character, he's in a different space. He's more circumspect about it, which I think is great. By the way, another incredible cast member. Yeah. We have, you know, like five minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the thing, the thing that's important to realize is that fame is not what we think it is because what we see, when we look at someone who's famous, their fame defines them for us because that is how we think of them. Mm -hmm. They are this person that is their image, but fame's effect on the person is completely different. Yeah. Like it, that doesn't make them feel the way that other people feel about them because they are famous. Yeah. It doesn't make the, what it, what fame is to someone who has it means that everybody's always looking at them and judging them and thinking, you know, it's yep. like it's 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 an entirely different sensation from what it looks like from the opposite direction, you know, yeah. and particularly in this case where he completely didn't understand how people were going to react to what he did. Mm-hmm. He thought they would applaud. Yeah, but they didn't. Initially, they did. And then they didn't. He was ashamed of his boasting, his pretensions of courage and ruthlessness. He was sorry about his cold-bloodedness, his dispassion, his inability to express what he now believed was the case, that he truly regretted killing Jesse, that he missed the man as much as anybody, and wished his murder hadn't been necessary. A strange bunch of lines. (laughs) And now it ends up, and this is true, Bob had formed a saloon, which was pretty successful, and he was a decent businessman. And then he ended up, he he did this thing because there was a big... uh, I don't remember if it was a silver mine or a gold mine in Colorado yeah. is that he, he built an entire saloon and got it all laid out exactly all the furniture, all the stuff exactly as he wanted, then packed it all up, took it on a train to where the mining town was and rebuilt it in a tent. Wow. In order to, and it was pretty successful because yeah. these guys just made a lot of money or spending a lot of money and he's walking through the room and we hear that even as he circulated his saloon, he knew that the smiles disappeared as he passed by yeah just gotta be easy even in this moment where he's kind of successful he can feel yeah what people know about him right and then which is so caught me off guard is there's a very odd freeze frame yeah in a very strange moment in a movie that's never had a freeze frame it's very odd and then we hear he kept to his apartment all day flipping over playing cards looking at his destiny in every king and jack I think on some level he hasn't changed. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. on some levels he has. Edward O'Kelly came up from Bachelor at 1 p.m. on the 8th. He had no grand scheme, no strategy, no agreement with higher authorities, nothing beyond a vague longing for glory. And we see him pouring like buckshot into a gun. And then we hear before the murder happens that Edward O'Kelly would be ordered to serve a life sentence for second degree murder, but over 7,000 signatures gathered for Kelly's release. And in 1902, the governor would pardon the man. Mm -hmm. So that's 1882, Bob Ford kills Jesse James. 1892, 10 years later, Edward O'Reilly kills Bob Ford. 1902, exactly 10 years after that, he's pardoned. There would be no eulogies for Bob. No photographs of his body would be sold in sundry stores. No biographies would be written about him. No children named after him. No one would ever pay 25 cents to stand in the rooms he grew up in. And we hear, Hello, Bob. And again, a freeze frame. The shotgun would ignite. 
and LMA would scream. But Robert Ford would only lay on the floor and look at the ceiling, the light going out of his eyes, before he could find the right words. And that is the end of the assassination of Jesse James. By the coward Robert Ford. By the coward Robert <laughs> Ford. So this movie was supposed to be released in 2006. Oh. And it was delayed. And part of the reason it was delayed is the first cut was over four hours long. Oh, where's that cut? I want that cut. And that cut, apparently, Jesse James's assassination is like the halfway point. Oh, my God. So there's tons of Bob Ford. There's things with uh, Jesse's wife at the funeral. There's Bob's dating different women. Right. There's all sorts of other stuff that goes on after wow. that Deacon says he really liked. And I'm sure it looks beautiful. But as, but but the studio looked at it and go, we can't do that. Damn it. Andrew Dominic wanted it to be even more dark and contemplative. Like he wanted this to be a Terrence Malick movie. Yeah. Which in a lot of ways it is. I agree. That's why I love it so much. Um, but the studio wanted less of that. Mm. And so after that, Brad Pitt brings in an editor and starts cutting a version. Ridley Scott comes in, brings in different editors. Wow. There's Dylan Titchener and Michael Kahn are doing lots of different versions. Um, and then Dylan Titchener left because he had to start work on There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. And then another edit came in to finish the cut. And at test screenings, it was terrible. Yeah. You know how we've talked about test screenings that you know went through the roof and it was yeah. the greatest thing ever? This is not that. Yeah. People loved Brad Pitt's performance and Affleck's performances, but they did not like the movie. It finally premiered a year later at the Venice Film Festival yeah. on September 2nd, 2007. It came out on September 21st, 2007. And its critical response was very good. Um, some people, you know, one of the things they said, masterpiece, best Western since Unforgiven, stunning visuals. Mm-hmm. They also compared it to No Country for Old Men that came out the same year. And it bombed. Yeah. Major, I mean, it, I budget was thirty million. It made four million. Yep. That is a bomb. Yep, I was mad when it bombed too. I remember because it, I wanted it to be best picture. I th- still think it should have been a best picture nominee, and Brad Pitt should have been nominated, and um, Casey Affleck. I think Casey Affleck was nominated, wasn't he? He was nominated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but so it, it was. I was blown. I was just heartbroken that that film didn't do better because it deserved a better response from the audiences. But you know. Well, and this is the year No Country for Old Men won Best Picture. Right. This only had two nominations. So Casey Affleck was nominated. He lost to Javier Bardem for No Pic- No Country for Old Men. Yeah, rightfully so, I would imagine, yeah. Uh, well, this is the thing. We never say anything bad about Javier because yeah. he's terrifying. <laughs> but compare the size of the roles. Yeah. Because really, Casey Affleck's the star of this movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, you could, you could ask yourself, um, Bardem has no arc. Yeah. But- Robert Ford does. And you could, and then you ask yourself, how many people actually watched that film to decide the answer? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, Lecter has no arc either. Yeah. Well, and the thing too is that Javier, Bar- what, what's the character's name? Um, um, Anton Chigurh. Anton Chigurh. He's like a unknowable character. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Whereas Bob Ford, there's all of this depth and complexity within everything that he does. Yeah. There's so much inner conflict and turmoil and stuff and things he's trying to present. It's a way more complicated performance. Uh, Javier Bardem's performance is amazing. Yeah. So it's like, it's not that they picked someone bad, but it is an interesting comparison. Deacon's lost cinematography to There Will Be Blood, but I think part of the, and There Will Be Blood is an amazing movie. Sure, 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 obviously sure. the cinematography is great, but I also think part of it is Deacon's was nominated 
twice because he was nominated for cinematography for this film and for No Country for Old Men. And so I bet he split the vote. Probably. Oh, not that. Not to take anything or, away from. Or people went with the popular choice, which was no country that everyone was loving. You know, that's possible too. No, but that didn't win. There will be blood. Oh, sorry. Yeah, maybe for split. cinematography. Oh, right. Shit. Right. So that split the vote. Yeah. Great point, yeah. Steve. Sorry. Yeah. Um. So that is all I have about mm. this film, and I will give my final thoughts first. I I'm really glad you have me. Not only am I really glad that you had me watch mm. it, but uh, I've been wanting to for years and. It was so much more than I expected it to be. And I'll tell you one of the signs of how good this movie is, is I sat down to watch with Karen and Karen Westerns aren't really her thing. And she kind of went, well, let's start it and we'll see, you know, and maybe I'll watch the whole thing. Maybe I won't because it's a long movie Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're busy. And so we watched the first 40 minutes and it just we didn't speak like we didn't (laughs) pause it. Like we just watched straight through the whole thing. And then we had to stop because I can only type so much. And then we and we sat down to watch it again and again, just blew through the next two hours. And Karen turned to me and just goes, wow, that is an amazing film. And it is not a film that I could tell you what it was all about. I mean, how many times did we stop in this film and say, well, what did this person want at this moment? And when did they decide to do this? And why did they do this? And when did they know about that? And I think we could study this and study this and study this and never get to the end of it. And I think part of the reason you never get to the end of it is we're never going to get to the end of Jesse James and Robert Ford. Yeah. They're just not, they're fundamentally not knowable. And I think that's why we keep being fascinated with them, even though basically neither of these are good guys. You know, these are both, but they're people that we're drawn to in some crazy, crazy way. How about you? What can I tell you? Um, the reason I've, I stressed this for the five years we've been doing the show or four years we've been doing the show is because it's a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece of a Western. And I still don't think it's been fully appreciated at the level that it needs to be appreciated. There's no 4K version of this thing out there. There's no criterion collection of this film out there yet. It's, I would argue it belongs maybe above over a hundred other films that are in the criterion collection. It belongs in the conversation. Andrew Dominic has never directed a better film. And if you've got Roger Deakins cinematography, you've got an incredible cast here bringing their A game. It's top to bottom. Top to bottom. Yeah. It's an elegaic, lyrical, poetic Western. It's not shoot 'em up, Jesse. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, John Wayne revenge or or Clint Eastwood revenge type Western. No, this is a Western that elevates the genre. People talk about films that elevate the genre, like horror or action adventure or even drama or comedy. This elevates the genre of Western, and just like The Godfather, I think, elevated the genre of, of uh, mafia movies. This elevates the genre of Westerns to a whole nother plane. Unforgiven is a great Western. The Searchers are great Westerns, but they still have the tropes of the shoot them up, go get them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This is something completely different. And it's an art house Western. And like Slow West is an art house Western as well. Those, when they come along, have to be supported by those of us who love Westerns to show that the genre is more than just a simple shoot 'em up revenge stuff. It's more. It can be more because it is Americana. It is Americana, the Western. And this film really shows you um, how the both the legendary aspects of the Western and deconstructs those legendary aspects of the Westerns to show the gritty, ugly underbelly of it 
as well. And I think that's why it deserves um, the praise and love that it has not gotten yet. It should get on numerous people's lists when they talk about the top 10 greatest Westerns ever made. It's a good thing you have a top 10 show where you can put it on some lists. We did it three times. Yeah. (laughs) You know, something just occurred to me as you were speaking uh, is just occurred to me as you're talking about the searchers and unforgiving Mm. is that all the deaths in this film are murders. Yep. None of them are gunfights. Yes, there's a gunfight between Wood and Dick, right. but it's not. He didn't get killed by the gunfight. He gets shot in the back of the head. Right. All the deaths are murders. There's nothing actiony about it right. at all. Right. And so one more thing, oh, go Steve. Ahead. I'm sorry because um, you know wanted to kind of connect all these final thoughts. Uh, also, the themes involved in this film are what's separated from other westerns as well. This idea of fame, this idea of wanting to achieve or take someone else's fame for yourself, and what the price you have to pay for that is. That's another part that of this western that separates itself. Also, the idea of mental health, this idea of exploring. You know, people mm. think mental health just came along the last four decades. It's been around since the dawn of man. Okay, so the fact that you have a Western that in 2006, 2007 is exploring that also makes this film a bit of a mini masterpiece. 100% agree. So that is what we think of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Leave comments on YouTube. Please re- leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. They still really, really help us. If you want to support the show, even suggesting films that we do, participate in some extra Q&As, or listen to our Cinephile shorts, you can do so at patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can buy or stream this film along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net and you can follow me on twitter at sr morris instagram at sr morris one and if you like star trek enterprise incidents with scott and steve we're going through the original series and i believe the outlaw is going to be back on (laughs) real soon for one of the greatest star trek episodes ever john how will people find you? Yeah, I'm absolutely looking forward to that uh, as well. So thank you. Uh, yeah, you can find me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram uh, over on Twitch, The Outlaw Nation, doing a bunch of watch-alongs for sporting events. Uh, I'm also a, an affiliate there, so I'll be doing some Amazon Prime watch-alongs so you can watch films with me as I talk about them uh, that are on Amazon Prime. Oh, and then you can also uh, head on over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says, and see all the content I've got going on there. And of course, uh, the uh, Geek buddies and the top 10 podcasts that are out there for you all to listen to that is a whole bunch of outlaw (laughs) stuff you can get and i think you should fill every day with it and i think that is it for this week we will see you next time for another great film on the cinephiles